Hey, funny business listeners, before you guys jump into another red hot episode from the boys, I just wanted to jump on quickly. It's Caleb Holstein, co-founder of Squarex Innovations here. As Aussies, we love our coffee, and the Australian coffee scene has long been a global benchmark for quality and innovation. And now, I'm pumped to introduce you to our best invention since the flat white, Squarex's first product deployment, GreenSquare. GreenSquare is a holistic ag tech software suite enabling coffee roasters and importers to take control of their largest product cost, green coffee. At SquareX, we're securing the digital future of the coffee supply chain and beyond. Enjoy the app. Hello and welcome to Funny Business. I love this podcast and I know you do too. <laughs> is that the new is that the new intro? Uh, you said you don't like the best podcast on the internet. So I was just like, I need to make something up. I love this podcast and you love it too. Well, I love our guest this week, Maxine Minter, uh, general partner at CoVentures and founder at CoLab and pretty inspiring and inspirational stuff. Probably the most articulate guest we've had on for a while and I feel like Maxine knows her stuff. Oh, well, the notes that you had on your little notepad during the chat was so, so, so smart times too. So is that weird little note that I took throughout this? I was <laughs> just, just like- trying to let me know that you think she's smart and I'm like, yeah, I think she's fucking smart. You know, like she's so switched on and just love what she's doing for early stage founders and investors, you know. I changing the, I feel like really changing the game here in Oz and uh, her experience being over in San Fran and seeing, I guess, the maturity level of uh, the startup infrastructure that exists over there and what, I guess, is lacking here in Oz and, and seeing what she's doing there and helping companies at that pre-seed stage. It's going to be some exciting stuff. It's like she had the crystal ball out and she's just telling us the future. It's crazy. <laughs> Maxine, thank you so much for jumping on the Funny Business Podcast. For those at home listening, tell us who are you and what do you do? Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm Maxine. I am the GP at CoVentures and we are a pre-seed fund, actually Australia's first specialist pre-seed fund and Australia's first fund by a woman by herself. I feel like we're seeing your stuff everywhere, getting excited about um, oh, having yeah, this yeah. chat and, and doing our research for today's pod. It feels like You've hit the ground with a bang and, and you're out there spreading the good word about what you're up to. Was this always the game plan to end up in this space for you? No, not at all. And I have been absolutely humbled by the bang, as you describe it. Um, I wasn't expecting such a uh, welcoming reception uh, as we launched the fund. So it has been all hands on deck to respond to it, but also just like lovely. And I'm really humbled for um, that moment and no there's lots of GPs launching funds at the moment um, and I just feel really grateful that we resonated so well with the Australian community and also you know folks outside of Australia and so it's been awesome I've been having a great time uh, but definitely was you know what I'm doing today was not the plan when I started thinking about working for a crust um, well actually my first job was delivering medicine uh, as a 12 year old to old people in my suburb so definitely Definitely not. Hey, we have the same first job. Dead set. I did the same. Stop it. Do you know what made me quit, Maxine? And this is going to be a horrible story because I feel I feel I felt terrible. It's not going to shine you in the best light. I don't know if you want to. But I was I was riding my bike around. I was riding my bike around delivering like the 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 pills thing. The Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I gave it to one person who she made me wait at the door, and I was like, oh, okay. She come back, and she's, I'll give you a tip. She come back with ten cents. But when she turned around to and I felt terrible that she she soiled herself. And I was like, oh. I went home and I, I with my $5 an hour I was getting, I bought a Gloria <laughs> Jean's cookies and cream crusher or some shit on the way home and realized I'd lost two bucks. And 
Uh, it was a, it was the worst experience ever. So I only lasted about three weeks, but crazy that that was our, our the same first job. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I did it for almost a year and really loved it. The suburb where I grew up, there was uh, a housing commission uh, just around the corner from us, and um, a lot of older people kind of living in the suburb. And so um, it was actually quite a busy run. Like there were lots of people on that run in varying states of. Um, I think what I would call kind of respectable living. It was very educational kind of what the variety of life journeys that can take you places. Um, one of my favourite, favourite people to deliver to was a man who had very bad arthritis um, and his hands, he could like almost not pick up coins. And so the process of him, and he would pay in coins because he um, lived in the housing commission, you know, didn't have a lot of money Um and he would have these stacks of coins on the bench in front of where he would, you know, open the door. And so he, you know, I'd have a little chat and then he'd shuffle over to the bench and no joke, like 15 minutes. He'd say nothing and count out, you know, $9.65 in 10 cent pieces. And then I'd have to put it into my school uniform and hold my pants up to, as I walked back to the chemist because, like, I couldn't, it was just so heavy that it would pull my skirt down. And so I would have to only do him at the end of the run, which meant that it was often quite late at night. And I still think very fondly, he's probably not with us anymore because he was quite elderly at the time. Um, but just a wonderful, kind man and had no concept of time or efficiency. <laughs> He was just looking for a chat and he, he's like, Yeah, you, how long you're... can we keep him? You know, what I mean? it's gonna be 15, 20 minutes. Like, that's exciting for their day, you know? You're a bit yeah. like that. You wouldn't have been. You're a bit of a grump, I reckon. You just wouldn't, wouldn't have bought the <laughs> Maybe it wasn't the job for me. But hey, what, what happened next? What was your pathway into the right, right. business? Right, right. So, um, I mean, like, I think a lot of people in, well, at that point was primary school and then to high school did like a lot of random odd jobs in hospitality. But I think, um, probably more interesting than me just reminiscing on the early days is my first kind of like proper jobs were I built a couple of companies while I was at university. Although at the time I didn't, like if you'd asked me if I was an entrepreneur or if I was like a, a company builder, there's no way, right? Like I was just solving cash flow challenges. I just wanted to have cash to be able to, you know, go on holidays between um, university semesters or like buy cute new jeans and so um they were of varying degrees of success um interestingly my mum had been an entrepreneur well has been an entrepreneur my entire life but I didn't really have that language and so maybe kind of looking back you can start the thread there but I don't think that that's really fair because I don't know that I was like consciously building these companies and wanting to be an entrepreneur I actually wanted to be a lawyer because watching her build businesses looked like a special form of hell um she just, you know, like busy and stressful and it's not clear that it's going to work. And she built companies, you know, way before there was any kind of real infrastructure around um, people building tech-enabled businesses. Like she was building online businesses in the early 90s, which, you know, in the Bay Area was cool and avant-garde, but in Australia was just like, why? What's the internet? <laughs> um, and so... I watched her do that and was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do probably what is the exact opposite to that, which is like a very structured, very clear career where if you tick the box, you get the promotion. If you tick the box, like you get the pay rise. And so did law at university, um, graduated, went and worked at uh, a couple of law firms. And I just got this like itch 
to keep hustling on the side, to keep building things. So I probably lasted a year and a half without a side hustle and then started building something on the side again. Um, and then kind of got to this point in my career where I looked up and around at the partners of the firm that I was at and was just like, that just doesn't look that fun. And I also don't look like you or act like you in any way, shape or form. And so it wasn't clear to me that there was a path there that I wanted to walk. So uh, paused, thought about, you know, what did I want to do next and decided. Um, and I think probably the kind of threads of all of that upbringing and influence had been like, I want to build a company. I think it looks interesting. I want to, that kind of creative exploration and also the impact. Um, what in hindsight was probably the most cliche thing I could do. I wanted to start a legal tech company. Like as a lawyer, you just take a small risk, reduced step to the side and build a legal tech company. Um and so I went to Stanford as a very expensive cover story to start a company in the Bay Area and like learn what the future looked like, or at least what I thought the future would look like. Um, and that was my first real introduction to this idea of like a startup to a you know, being an entrepreneur to investing. You know, that uh, ecosystem in the Bay Area is a much more mature ecosystem than here. Um, and I just... Like, I don't think I even drank the Kool-Aid. I was just like straight swimming in it for years. Like it was just wonderful. Um, so I built a venture-backed, my first venture-backed company then, um, built it while I was on campus doing my degree and then raised money kind of the, the summer that I graduated um, and did the kind of venture-backed startup route for a while, was angel investing on the side. Um, looking back, I don't, I don't think I've had a solid period of my life where a single activity was all that I could do. I was like constantly side hustling. Um, I think I now maybe more favorably term it as cross training. So like running multiple parallel activities, but I think that is just like favorable rebranding of, um, you know, being highly interested in many different things. Um, and what so friends and, what about friends and family? Like when you're explaining to them what you do, I feel like it would have been a lot easier to say I'm a lawyer, you know, did, you, did they understand yeah. what it is that you're up to and the fact that you had lots of different plates spinning and involved in lots of stuff? Well, I think this is one of the things that I have been incredibly lucky with, which is my mum got it like from day one before anyone else in my world was kind of introduced to the idea. And I think that there's this really interesting thing, especially for lawyers, but also for doctors, bankers, this idea that we accept it as an identity, like it's a term that we say, like, who are you? And someone will say, I'm a doctor, right? Or I'm now, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an investor. I think that's an interesting thing that happens with identity and our careers. Um, so there was definitely a transition where I noticed that I was no longer a lawyer and I, I didn't have a new noun that I wanted to use. Um, but mum definitely fully understood the kind of like side hustling thing. Her thing has always been like swing for the fences. But if you, you completely flame out, that's cool. You can come and live with me on the South Coast as a bankrupt. <laughs> you know, it's like always like there's no downside risk because you have your friends, your family and your health. And as long as you have those three things, there's no downside risk. It's all about swinging for the fences. So I think she actually, um, she's pretty avant-garde in her own way. She's kooky as anything, but she's pretty avant-garde in her own way. And so I think that was really helpful to have her, at least one person in my world who like totally got it 
straight out of the gates. Then there was lots of other people where like you pitch an idea to them, especially at the time, like 2017 in Australia, if you're like, I want to start a company with all the love in their hearts, all of my friends and family were like, here's the 900 reasons why that's a terrible idea, right? Like this is how it's going to fail. This is all the reasons why you're going to lose money. This is all of the reasons why that idea is not going to work in an attempt to keep you safe, which is a pretty exhausting um, exchange. So, but now I would say the vast majority of people get it. Like the vast, vast majority of people, I think start the startup ecosystem in Australia has moved such a long way between 2017 and 2023 that a large portion of the population at least knows what a startup is, knows what an investment is, knows what a VC is, and can have like some entry point into what we're doing. We'll touch in on this uh, off air before we hit record, but we'd love to get your thoughts on maybe that to go in a little bit more about the maturity of the startup ecosystem here and what you saw over in San Fran and what how you can uh, uh, relate it back to Australia and maybe over that 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 time period. Gosh, yeah, that is. I mean, that's a nice meaty topic. I could probably pontificate on this for hours. I won't do that to you. Um, I think a couple of key themes I've noticed. There's probably some in the bucket of like the stage of the cycle, right? Being in the Bay Area in 2017, um, at the time, all of the narrative was we are like peak hype cycle. We've been at this now for 10 years. Traditionally, the cycle is a 10 years, like a decade long cycle. Um, Valuations are absolutely astronomical. Um, You know, we couldn't possibly go any further from here, which, you know, now with the gift of hindsight, that was untrue there was another five years or three four years to the top of the cycle um but i think the one of the things that i noticed was the dynamics between investors and entrepreneurs at the time investors in the bay very much had the power and so you know pitching to them was an experience um they very much you know they were the ones that held the purse strings there was not this dynamic that we saw in terms of um, the kind of open sourcing of how to pitch to found, pitch to investors, how to find them, et cetera. There's a lot of those dynamics that now have been thankfully removed because a lot more entrepreneurs have stepped into the venture ecosystem and been like, oh, that was really hard and it didn't need to be that hard and it didn't serve the ecosystem. So I saw that dynamic happen in the Bay Area like 2017, 18, 19. And I feel like Australia is coming through that journey now. I think a lot of the big funds like Airtree and folks have done a wonderful job of open sourcing that stuff, but I think that just takes some time to move through the ecosystem. I think if I kind of continue that trend line, I think we will see that happen through into funds and, you know, different innovative ways to raise venture capital as a fund manager or a syndicate manager or even like different models as an angel investor. And I think we'll start to see that kind of entrepreneurial thread show up in, um, different iterations of the way that people deploy capital, which I'm super excited to see. I think that's another inflection point for the ecosystem that's coming just around the corner. Um, Because at the moment, raising capital from LPs is like a dark art. There's a lot of, you know, trying to find people behind closed doors, who you might pitch to, what they actually want, how do they make their decision. I don't think that that is intentional. It's just no one's really spent time thinking about kind of open sourcing that ecosystem, but that's changing. I think I also got an interesting data point over the last 
four or five years with my partner and I split our time 50-50 between the the US and Australia. And so we rotate every kind of month and a half to two months-ish. And so I watched this really interesting like front-running dynamic in the Bay Area as they move through the cycles through COVID and then through um, like market deterioration and then market recovery it seems to be somewhere between the kind of three to six months ahead in terms of those cycles and so there was really interesting moments where the bay area was like the world's on fire it's all downhill from here like we're all gonna die and australia was like how's the beach this weekend this looks like a pretty fun time to write huge checks into stuff and then like six months later they were either further in the depths of despair and australia was like oh it's going to be quite bad. Um, or now it's the inverse. So the Bay Area really feels like it's coming back online, especially with the kind of Gen AI ecosystem. There is a very fast pace um, that's kind of picking back up in specifically that category and it's starting to spread to other categories, starting to see some like, really meaty rounds, a lot more um, kind of oversubscribed rounds where entrepreneurs are getting deals away in like a couple of weeks with very high valuations. Um, I've seen that just in the last quarter. I haven't seen that for a year and a half and I'm not seeing that yet kind of properly in Australia. So I think we're probably on the other side of the upswing, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, I mean, there's so many elements, I think, between these, these two ecosystems. They're actually much more similar to each other than different, which I think is quite exciting when um, – from my vantage point, getting to kind of watch both together. I'm blown away. What, what about uh, your interest in the early stage parts of startups? Like why, why pre-seed? Why the early stage? Yeah, I mean, first of all, pre-seed is just wonderful. I don't know if you spent any time there. I mean, I know for what you guys do, you do spend time with super early stages. But when I say pre-seed, I think of pre-product, pre-revenue businesses. And I think that is slightly different. We do, there are some folks in Australia that talk about pre-seed and actually it's just seed at a significant valuation discount, meaning like there is a product in market, they have revenue, they have early traction, but there's some other risk factor or bias that is introduced to make them say, oh, actually we want to do this as a pre-seed round. Um, so when I say pre-seed, I think pre-product, pre-revenue. So what you're investing in is largely the dynamics of, an, of a market that that founder is chasing and the quality of the founding team in relation to that market and then the quality of the founding team by themselves. And those three areas are just endlessly fascinating to me. I could spend all day, all night in that, like thinking about those topics. Um, I also, there's a kind of impact element here for me in that when I was raising pre-seed in the US, like I was completely new to the US. I did not know a single human being on the continental United States of America and came in there like just cold and didn't know what you know, entrepreneurship was at the point that I landed in San Francisco at the end of August. And kind of that transition to raising capital from really wonderful VCs, there was an early stage, which a man called Dustin Dogano, who led our pre-seed investment and was investing out of his own kind of micro fund at the time, he was an inflection point in my confidence in myself, an inflection point in like, how I thought about the business, an inflection point in the sophistication with which I could talk about what it was that we were chasing. And he was incredible, just like a totally incredible partner to have in the business at that moment in time, um, let alone the capital that he brought to the table. And so I had this experience of working with this pre-seed investor and just being like, this was incredible. And then when we came to seed investing, 
um, or the, our seed round, he was instrumental in helping us kind of find the right investors, learn how to talk to them, how to close that informational asymmetry between the future of the world that we saw, you know, with the opportunity that we saw and what they would hear us say as we were communicating it to them um, and helped us do a really wonderful round with uh, first round box group and a bunch of other amazing US investors. And so I'd had that experience um, and also coming into the seed round also at the pre-seed round, like there just wasn't anyone that looked like me who was available to deploy capital. At the time, I think I found four females who were deploying capital, all of which said no. Um, there weren't that many angel investors. It was really hard for me to get folks on the cap table who like I had a demographic identity with. Um, I also, like the product that we were building was mass market to the US. And so finding a demographic of investors that reflected, that reflected the demographic of the customers that we were building for was just like nigh on impossible. And so when I got to the other side of the seed round, I was like, that sucked. Like that didn't have to be like that. Um, I really want to see more folks that I identify with deploying capital and just, just like a, a wider range of people deploying capital. And so I started angel investing um, in a way that at the time probably was extremely fiscally irresponsible. I definitely, you know, I was a founder, seed stage founder living in the Bay Area, which is not a particularly cash flow generative thing to do. Um, so was investing these kind of tiny checks into companies more as a way of replicating what Dustin had done for us, which was, you know, just putting my voice behind their chorus to be like, you're awesome, what you're chasing is awesome, I underwrite that with my very pitiful tiny check please humbly accept my dollars um and the combination of those two things that when I came back to Australia uh in 2020 for what I thought would be a couple of months I just it was clear to me that there weren't a lot of people or really you know maybe like a handful of people that were deploying and investing behind pre-seed in that same way that Dustin had showed me it was possible and that I had seen kind of more scaled in the Bay Area and so it was an obvious like impact opportunity for founders. It was an obvious return opportunity for LPs because uh, I had been investing that thesis for a while at that point. Um, and so it was just kind of a coalesce, coalition, that is not a word, coalescence of things all together that are like made it extremely fun, extremely impactful if you did it well and rewarding if you did it really well, which is like a great Venn diagram of things. Can you go into, for people who, if we rewind back a little bit, who want to understand a bit more about what it is and how it kicked off, can you go into that? So CoVentures is a pre-seed fund. Um, we are investing in just pre-seed, so uh, just that first round of capital um, into companies, as I said, kind of pre-product, pre-revenue. Um, we are... As a fund, I think something that we don't realise is that um, in, in Australia, as with everywhere in the world, companies are built in a progression, which is that you have an idea, you then test the idea in some format, and if you get signal that it works, then you lean further in, either like quit your job or, um, you know, maybe seek funding. And then if it really works, i.e. you have product market fit, then you start building the company around that. And Australia is doing a, a pretty good job at the moment, although not ideal, a pretty good job of funding that moment when it's like, oh, it's really working. Let's lean in and build the company around that. But actually, that's a funnel. 
right? There are more companies that have potential ideas that want to take the step to kind of test it in that early stage than there are companies that it really worked and they want to lean in. But our funding ecosystem looks like a diamond. There are not many people that are funding that idea stage other than kind of a handful of accelerators and folks then are funding that like it's really working, let's lean in. And so what that builds in is the assumption that only people with enough risk capital or personal risk appetite to take that risk have good ideas, which I just don't subscribe to. So I think that there needs to be capital that funds that first stage, that kind of idea stage, maybe it could work stage, proportionate to the number of ideas that are at that stage. So what we do is we fund that stage and seek to help people de-risk between idea through to, wow, it's really working, and then help accelerate them to the community of people that can really help once it's really working. So the seed stage and later. Um, We focus on companies that we think can be uh, internationally successful at the moment, really focusing on uh, an Australia to US expansion. So um, another experience I had was I, you know, and this is the case for most pre-seed companies is you have this idea, you put it in market and you kind of iterate around. And if it works, you lean in on that thing, but you try a whole bunch of kind of iterative experiments. So you come in with an idea and the number of people that leave that stage with the exact same product, idea, market, go-to-market, business model, et cetera, as when they entered in is like minuscule, tiny, itty-bitty. So it means the way that you fund that pre-seed stage and support founders and teams going through that pre-seed stage, I think actually looks very different than once you work out what works. And so for us, we think that that's collaboration, not a fund to come in and take the entire round. So we look to collaborate around these deals as opposed to come in and own, you know, be your sole investor uh, at that round. So we write hundred dollars to $150,000 checks. Um, we're looking to kind of bring folks in around us. So one of the exciting things that we are launching this week well, actually, in a few weeks um, at the date of recording this uh, pod, is a syndicate to allow other people to join us alongside us when we are investing. So when we get allocation uh, where our LPs don't take the full amount of that allocation, then we are going to be opening it up to our syndicate in a kind of public community syndicate, which I'm super excited about because it gives both a wider range of people access to invest via um you know, directly into a syndicate and for a smaller check size. So you could invest for a smaller amount as opposed to having to deploy larger amounts. So it kind of brings down some of those barriers to participate at that pre-seed stage. One of the things I, I, I think that we'll probably agree on is if we're done our research right, is like people getting access to opportunity. I think I feel like from Locke and I's perspective, being an outsider coming into the world of startups and sort of like falling into it and seeing how it all works. It, it really is that mystery behind if you don't know the right person that allows you to do blah, mm-hmm. then you're not going to get past a certain stage regardless of how it all looks. And for us, that's that's a really interesting thing for a lot of people. We come across so many people who are putting their hearts and souls at that early stage, that pre-seed stage where they've quit their job or they're supporting families and they're just building and doing stuff, but they can't get anyone to listen to them that's it's an it's an interesting dynamic which for us it's like it, it is it must be disheartening for people if with without the support there as you mentioned it's it's, it's in the american mm. market now but like what are some of the things that you think needs to exist to allow more companies at that early stage to get access to that opportunity 
Oh, yes. If I was to wave a magic wand and just like wish into existence a bunch of infrastructure in the Australian ecosystem, it would be a couple of things. One is a thriving ecosystem of operator angels. So I'm so jazzed for the thing that you guys are building because it's so valuable to have more people in the ecosystem talking about demystifying each of those buckets, right? As opposed to like one strategy is just have like a very tight-knit community that are all investing in themselves and, you know, it's kind of like drinking their own Kool-Aid dynamic. I don't think that strategy works very well. And I think um, at an early stage, most ecosystems look like that, but I think we have now graduated past that ecosystem stage in Australia. So the next stage is for lots of people to know enough about this early stage of building, kind of how to build these kinds of companies, that lots of people can find that information in a relatively easy way. Either they know someone who's in the ecosystem because there's a lot of people in Australia who are involved in the ecosystem. And I think that that is a real possibility for Australia watching the rate at which our the ecosystem is growing. The other is that the information is really accessible, right? To like find that information doesn't require personal relationships you know, access to gated communities, et cetera. And I think we're getting better at that. But if you spend time in the US, there is just this unending stream of content that is constantly available to you about how to think about the early iteration, you know, develop your key hypotheses for your business, how to de-risk them, how to talk to investors, how to run a really effective investment raise process, um, how to think about those early employees that you're hiring all the way through to how to do that at scale, right? The like depth of content on each of those topics is robust, well-credentialed from people that have done it many times over. And we just aren't there yet as an ecosystem, but I think we will get there, right? The more content that we can make available and discoverable, like publicly discoverable, I think is really valuable. So more podcasters, more writers, more people that are willing to you know, put their thoughts and ideas out there, even if they are not fully polished and fully vetted, you know, just kind of put it out there as a thought prompt, kind of pay it forward from a knowledge perspective. Um, I would love to see a wider community of folks running things like small syndicates and micro funds because they are the kind of funds that are better placed from a returns perspective and a resourcing perspective to write those tiny checks, those high-risk tiny checks and underwrite that learning stage for founders. Um, I would love to see more CVC again so that a lot of the talent that is going into corporates are aware that venture exists, that, uh, you know, it could be a really interesting and compelling um, ecosystem for them. I would really love to see attributable deal flow and attributable track record records for investors. This is a micro soapbox that I've been standing on um, recently since I found out that for a lot of our uh, uh, funds, it's harder for principals and associates coming through those funds to attribute the deal flow that they were part of. And this matters for funds, maybe just as kind of nerdy side piece, I promise I'll come back, is that um, it, it's really hard to scale a venture fund. And they are partnership models kind of like a law firm is a partnership model right? you have these like individual partners and it's really hard to grow them over time. That's why Funds like Sequoia and the like are just so impressive with what they've been able to build. Um, and so as these funds are growing, they either hire new partners or they promote new partners internally. But if you are one of those more senior investors at that fund and you are looking to get promoted to that next layer or move funds, you need kind of a portable deal flow CV 
to say like, I found these deals, I made these decisions, like these are mine. And that's really hard to do with all of your deal experience and all of your investing experiences in a fund. And you can't kind of follow the thread, like you found the deal, you diligenced it and you made a decision. So I would love to see more of this kind of portable deal flow attribution so that folks can start their own funds, compellingly pitch LPs, et cetera. I mean, I could continue to rant. Do you want me to keep it's, it's like It's like if you're a graphic designer and someone says, what work have you done? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, exactly. hey, I, exactly. I, I did that I did that brand, I did that brand, I did that brand, here's yeah. my stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. And it isn't as compelling. Like if you're in the graphic designer example, if you are going to a new customer, it isn't as compelling to say, I was part of a team that did this, right? That's much harder as an individual to invest behind a graphic designer or say, hey, graphic designer, sure, you can, you know, take my brand and do what you would like with it, which is essentially what's happening as an investor who's investing in a venture fund. If you're like, well, you were part of a team, but like, were you the creative brains behind this? Or were you the person that worked out like this is the thing that's really going to hit? You know, it's without that attribution, it's much harder for people to port their track record into different places, which creates a glass ceiling. What what do you look for in founders? What do you what have you seen over time that you're just like I love the way they do that? I I mean the first thing to say is I think humans are the best invention in the entire world. I just think they are truly incredible to watch. Um, I with another hat on, I run a company called Colab. We place executive coaches into um, fast fast growing, high performing teams. The executive coaches usually work with founders, but sometimes work with with the executive and so from that place I have watched multiple times people go on that growth journey of being a founder through to being a high-performing CEO of like some of the world's most amazing companies so with that hat on we've worked with coaches who have supported the executive team at Notion, Linktree, Plaid, Segment etc so watch these incredible journeys and so what I have seen time and time again is the superhuman pace of self-development relearning and relearning that is required for a founder to make the journey between brilliant idea, amazing product through to billion dollar company, right? That is not an easy progression to make. So one of the key things for us is that you have the uh, fundamental ingredients to be able to have a great shot at making that trajectory. One of which is that you have to learn and iterate and grow at what, you know, it's kind of a superhuman pace. You need to be able to, what I call growth mindset, what the literature calls growth mindset, that ability to iterate and grow really, really quickly. Um, the other is just have a very high threshold for pain. You know, grit and the, the ability to push through really tough moments is really crucial because, like, this doesn't get a lot of chat in the kind of zeitgeist of the entrepreneur, but there are moments that are, like, truly shite, truly shite. Like, bad things happen all together there are moments that you're like deep in fundraise and it's just not going well you know you might have to talk to 400 500 600 investors to get around the way like that level of grit that level of determination for the the dent you're trying to make in the world is table stakes right it is one of the most important elements to be a successful founder for us again super excited about the folks that are connected and deeply obsessed with the the space that they're chasing again kind of you're not going to consistently get up in the morning and just get punched in the face every day in those like moments of grind 
for a product or a space that you're kind of like, eh, I could take it or leave it, you know, like that'd be cool if that changed, but I don't really need to see that change in the world. So really want to see people that like are obsessed with the problem that they're chasing and deeply know it. I feel like all the, the common themes I've been seeing is founders, they're all just completely psycho in their own different way. You know, it's just like <laughs> they are not normal people. You know, like you were saying, they push through the pain. It's like you have to be a bit eclectic. You know, you have to be a little mm. bit different and built of different stuff. I feel like for us, like being a bit naive and going into things and you just, you got that sort of Labrador sort of face and you're just like, oh, everything's possible and all this sort of stuff. And then just being able to yeah. get back up again and do it again and do it again. Like it, t- it takes courage to get back up and and do it you know what I mean absolutely there's a um I don't know if you guys have read the new book from Walter Agassaxon about Elon Musk and I um you know I don't love the uh Elon Musk as the like icon of the entrepreneur but you can't refute the fact that he has you know put people on the moon and reinvented transport but he has this great quote in the book that's something along the lines of um you know I put people on the moon I uh, reinvented transport and changed the way that energy works. Did you think I was going to be a nice, chill dude? <laughs> Which I'm like, you're not wrong. You know, you do have to be like a little bit quirky to push as hard as it is required to move the present to what you know is possible in the future. Like that takes an enormous amount of work. And so we're looking for people that have that in them right, that they have that ability to just unlock that incredibleness. It's, it's probably a good segue and something that I reckon that you have been a lot more passionate about recently, Locke, is that uh, how how we hear so many of these different stories and, and the question we ask, well, I guess, is what do you turn to to get some energy back in your life? But mm. if we're just following on to the, the thread that we've been chatting on is people who achieve big things, it's, there's, a, there's a certain limit where it's almost like taboo where it's like it got to a point where everyone said, you look after your mental health and do this sort of stuff and, and hustle culture hustle culture yeah. is bad and all this, but it's like you still definitely have to look after your mental health. And that's why we're going to do the question of what, what do you need to do to get energy back? But anyone who's achieved anything is, has done it through enormous amounts of work of tackling through the resilience, the grit to pick yourself back up and push through that part where you may be fucking cooked. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. so many people have chatted to have cooked themselves, but they've built these amazing stuff. And I think that everything like that is, is a trade-off, but it's like, you can't have both sometimes, you know, it's, it's one of those, like, they're not good yeah. trade-off options. It's like, it's not, Hey, if I don't choose this, it's a good option as a trade-off. It's like, no, if I don't do this, that's a still a shit option, but I have to choose something. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a couple of things I'd love to pull on there. So the first is that um, Bill Gurley did this wonderful lecture for UT a couple of years ago, which he called running down a dream, which like true to Bill Gurley is just like beautifully crafted and has amazing language in it. It's just a delight to listen to, but he has this kind of key theme in it, which is um, to be really successful at something. You have to work really, really hard at it and you have to practice really hard and you have to do a lot of reps. And what that means is the person that loves doing that thing that is really interested and excited and engaged in it is going to have more energy to do those reps than you are if you're doing it because someone told you it was cool or it was intellectually kind of stimulating to you at the beginning, but you don't have something deep that drives you to do it. So I think the first thing that I would say is like choosing work and working out what kind of work that feels energizing 
for you and being relentless about finding the thing that you get really excited about that you are kind of like irrationally obsessed with and iterating towards that. And I think this is something I see a lot of founders get wrong, which is like build something because it's, you know, interesting or hypey, but then it gets really hard and it drains their battery 10, 20, 30x faster than if they were working on something that brought them a lot of passion. So I do think that there are some fundamental decisions you can make at the outset when choosing kind of what to chase or like what dent to make in the world and choosing something that you genuinely get energy from. Then the second part of that is I would think about um, like within that scope, what are the things that you do that you genuinely get energy from? And I think like not to underline this point too heavily, but like also to kind of underline this point extremely heavily, which is taking the time to pause and reflect on how you're working as well as what you're working on and thinking about did it suck your energy or did it bring you joy and like bring you energy is probably one of the highest leverage activities I think you can do as you're iterating your way towards those things. Um, But yeah, yes, like you get to this point that there is just a large volume of things that need to be done. If you've done that effectively hopefully some of that will be stuff that brings you energy joy and stimulation and then some of it will just be like the shit you have to do to be successful at what you're doing my coach talks about it as like the work and the job and ideally you want to move yourself in the direction where the venn diagram of the work of the job is like you know maximally overlapped but it's never going to be one for one and so there are just things that you have to do that are necessary Sometimes they're really high stakes, they're really important and they require that you do them really well and they just suck. (laughs) And so working out how to do them fast enough, effectively and not letting yourself kind of procrastinate around them um, and working out what your habits and motions are there. I think those things are crucial to high performance generally and, and kind of hitting that, like making those dents because they just require an enormous amount of work. Um, for me, that can be anything on the spectrum of hanging out with my partner who is like the most playful, wonderful person I've ever met in my life. And that just recharges my battery almost instantaneously through to doing a really intense workout through to ocean swimming. Um, <laughs> specifically when I have long nails, weird quirk, but for anyone who likes to ocean swim or swim in pools, when you have long nails, there's this really cool thing that happens that when your hand hits the water, you create these like um, bubble streams that come off your fingernails and they are totally mesmerizing. I have lost like half an hour and direction in the ocean watching the bubble streams come off my nails. Anyway, like finding those motions that really fill up your cup and knowing what they are so that you can strategically deploy them to refill in those moments that you've just got to grind. And then there's a kind of another whole bucket, which is just like hacking your psychology to get through the shitty bits setting yourself incentives, setting yourself, you know, targets, goals, etc. I think like for me, my journey having a coach has just been incredible to do that. He has really helped me on the pace at which I can iterate on those things and work out what, what really works for me because I don't know that I ever would have worked out how joy generating it was to watch bubbles on my fingernails until I was reflecting my, on my week with him and I was talking about that moment and he was like, why don't you just build that in? Like know that that's required, pre-plan for it and put bubbles on your fingernails. And I'm like, my friend, 
learned. You are brilliant. <laughs> Sounds like almost cheating, you know, like webbed fingers almost. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's like the Noz button. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about for you um, personally finding that you mentioned reflection and how it's important, like mm. space to think about, like to problem solve. You mentioned like there's high stakes and you got to do stuff, but like putting aside that time to actually like really think about it because, you know, writers get writer's block, you know, if you're a musician or, or any of that, like you can get sort of like, problem stuck as well you know oh 100 yeah i think one thing that i found really really helpful is to have open space like uh what what i call white space time in my calendar where i'm thinking about working on the business not in the business um it's so easy to get kind of stuck in the day-to-day cycle um so i have a chunk of time in my calendar where i'm like pausing and thinking about like what is it that i'm working on how does that align to my goals um I think a key part of this is there's uh, something called the Eisenhower matrix, which is essentially urgent and not an important and kind of blotting tasks on what is urgent, important and where they sit at the various intersections of those. Um, and what happens is that you prioritize the urgent and the stuff that's important doesn't get done if it's not urgent, which compounds really badly for you over time. Really crucial things like, exercise, eating well, saving, you know, spending time with family and friends. Those are things that are very rarely going to scream for your attention on a timeline that really matter. Like the moment you realize you needed savings is very unlikely to be the moment that you can manufacture more savings, you know? Um, And so I think finding space in my day to kind of pause. um, I think the other thing is that it's very hard to rely just on will power to do this for you so i heavily use my calendar as a like planner as a tracker of my time but also project planner of what i'm going to be doing next it's a great way to check my unbounded optimism in my belief to achieve many more things than is actually capable of achieving in a week and so kind of committing to certain time blocks for things so i block out that time that reflection time to make sure i'm asking myself that question at a regular cadence I um, use a product called Sunsama, which I have just like has changed my life. I have tried so many times to invest in this company. Like I have done embarrassing things to try uh, and convince Ashu to let me invest in his company. And um, kudos to him. He has uh, withstood my advances up until now. Um, but it is a wonderful company that sets up uh, for me a day motion that feels really like I have my arms around the day every single day. So every single day you go through your tasks and work out what it is you're going to be doing that day. It has little prompts and thoughts for you to make sure you're not being overly ambitious, you know, categorize them into different categories. And at the end of the day, so it like che- checks off your tasks as you're doing them or you go in and check them off depending on whether they're scheduled. And then at the end of the day, it takes you through a reflection exercise to be like, this is what you did today. These are the things you're not going to do today. And, you know, prompts at the end, kind of what did you observe or you know, what did you notice? It takes me 10 minutes a day and it makes sure every single day I ask myself the question of like, what brought me joy? What's at my energy? What should change? And it would be, you would be amazed by the insights you can get from just doing that every single day. And also the motion of like, my day is now over, especially in a world where we're working from home. It's really hard to create that physical separation between work and kind of not work for me. Um, so this is a great almost hack for me to be able to be like, great, I'm done. Just a little product feature that just, you know, blows my mind is when you press done, 
it comes up, it's just a black screen, it blacks out your entire screen and it says done and then it gives you a little statement of like, you crushed it today or, you know, it is actually a productive thing to do for you to rest. He's a little, he's just, oh, I love the product so much, I just wish he would have let me invest, <laughs> but he did it. <laughs> Robin, have it done. It's time to watch Blue Healers reruns. You know? Blue Healers reruns. <laughs> hey, we're getting to it. It's just weird again, weird to say it a couple of times now today, yeah, but uh, flying by, what, yeah. we're at the pointy end of 2023. What are you excited about for the rest of the year? Ah, so many things. I, I'm really excited for South by Southwest in Sydney. Um, I think it is a indication of where the Australian ecosystem is at and how quickly it has become globally relevant um, as a kind of cornerstone moment. Like South by is probably one of the most well-known tech conferences in the world. And the fact that they chose Australia in October is really exciting. So that I'm really looking forward to. Um, I am a very high extrovert, so it gets the bonus of just like spending a large amount of time with lots of people. That's a winner. Um, I am cautiously but not so cautiously optimistic for where I think the ecosystem is going to go at the end of this year like I feel like we're speeding up I feel like we're just starting to see the other side of what was a a pretty woefully shit year to two for folks and I'm just really excited for that for all of us um I think with that I'm starting to see these little sparks of uh ambition kind of starting to regrow in the ecosystem, which I'm I'm really jazzed about. Um, I'm super excited to launch this syndicate. I uh, A big driver for me is making it possible for other people and the idea of being able to do that at a higher level of scale, I am really looking forward to. Um, and it's going to be a lot of work, but I'm like, I'm here for it. Um, and then I am really excited for a warm Sydney summer because it's been a while for Sydney. We had like smoky, COVID-y, rainy, rainy, and now we're coming into the first in five years where I am so excited for some of those like dramatic Sydney storms where it clears the beach for an hour and then everyone kind of hides, has a drink, and then the sun comes back out and you have a lovely, that like beautiful pinky um, blue sunset that I haven't seen in Sydney for a really long time. Oh, I love that. Sunsets are the best. Sometimes I reckon it can make you feel so small sometimes when you just look outside and you're looking at the sunset and you're like, I've got a bunch of problems. I've got a bunch of things going on that I need to solve, but I'm just a little speck of dust, you know, in this big, big world. And you're looking at that and going, it's just natural beauty, isn't it? I like that. Well, uh-huh. hey, thank you. Sunset. It's nice. It's just a very romantic end to the... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> thank you so much for jumping on and chatting with us today. Uh, if people are interested to learn more and find you, find out more, where can they find your stuff? Find me on LinkedIn. That is where I'm most active at the moment. Our website is out of trash at the moment. So, yeah, find me on LinkedIn. Hey. If you like this, oh, blow your head off! Huh? Hey, if you like this episode and you and you dig what you're listening to with funny <laughs> business, send this episode to a friend. I feel like we got plenty of episodes coming up, and they're belters of guests. Just yeah. I'm not going to say just as good because it's hard to say that as the outro wrap up of Maxine's episode because yeah. she rocked the house in today's ep. Incredible, and I just think incredible job all around. You know, uh, subscribe to us because as Rob said, the next few guests are fucking crazy. I feel like you're going to love it. I feel like we're getting better at our craft too. I feel like we're asking better questions. Oh, stop pumping your own tyres in the outro. Someone has to. Send this episode to a friend or else. (laughs) Oh.
Another cracking episode from the Funny Business Boys. Caleb Holstein, co-founder of Squarex Innovations here, just wanted to jump on and give you guys a quick update. Squarex is currently open for investment. If you're interested in learning more about what we do at Squarex and want to get involved in the digital future of agricultural supply chains, reach out to me via LinkedIn or you can reach out to the Dream Big Social Club team and join us securing the digital future of the coffee supply chain and beyond.